Well, it is uh, truly a great privilege to be here once again. It's great to be back at uh, Neighborhood Bible Church. This time I got to bring my family. Last time we had some uh, kids that were sick and my wife was unable to join me. So I am glad uh, to be here once again and to be a part of the Decent Exposure series. A uh, very small part. I, I got to speak from John chapter 2 the last time I was here. And it's great to see that you guys are taking your time through this amazing gospel. Life-transforming gospel uh, from God's Word. We're going to be in John 17 today, continuing in this mini-series on prayer. The Lord's Prayer 3.2. They've started last week with Lord's Prayer 3.0. One of the great prayers that Christ gives. Uh, often called, I might even say this in your Bible, the high priestly prayer of Christ. Have you ever gotten to be a fly on the wall where you can... Listen in to a conversation. Now, some of you have because you're eavesdroppers. Maybe you're at a restaurant and you uh, you tend to to listen to the conversations that are going on around you. Uh, those people will go unnamed, but my wife is uh, among those. Uh, I can tell when she's... Uh, sorry, honey. Uh, she knows that I, uh, I I like to tease her about that because I can tell when we're, in a, when we're on a date and I'm talking to her and I can tell that her extra sensory... <laughs> is enveloping uh, the tables around us. And I said, so what's interesting? What's going on over there? Because obviously I'm not uh, at this particular time. Well, I got to be a fly on the wall. And let me kind of give you, set this up a little bit. Uh, but in our offices at West Hills Community Church, uh, our offices are in a very old home, a two-story home. Uh, it must be Civil War era by the way it creaks and the way it, the, the way it kind of looks. And my office was on the top of the stairway in kind of an open area, stairway landing, if you will, uh, for the first two years that I was there. I have a real office now with a closing door. If I wanted any privacy, I'd have to put on some headphones and, uh, and kind of tune everybody out because I could hear all the, right down the stairway, I could look right down the stairway, and that was the open reception area where our secretary was, the copy machines, and I could hear all kinds of conversations that were going on. Well, one such day, I heard the most amazing conversation. It was great. One of our young men came in to, to do some copies. We'll just, just kind of put some quotes around that because I'm not sure that was his full intention of being there. And, and as I tell the story, that'll, that'll be more plain to you. He comes in to make some copies, and I had been discipling him and knew that he was interested in our church secretary at that time. And so he came in, and he was making his copies and making some light conversation with her. And, and I'm up there kind of working on the computer, working on something that I was working on. And, and then all of a sudden my radar went straight up because he said, so, um, I was just kind of curious if maybe, uh, sometime you and I could go out. I'm like, wow, this is great. I've never got to hear anybody ask somebody else on a date <laughs> other than myself. So I'm up there and I'm listening now very intently of what's going on. And so her question was, well, what do you mean by that? And so I went, uh-oh, this isn't going well. This is great. I'm something good. Wow, I'm listening, uh, just really in tune to this. And he says, well, you know, we can go out sometime, go get some dinner maybe, go to a movie, go someplace, do something together. And her response, there was a little bit of a pause. And uh, the response then was, I don't really do that kind of thing. I went, oh, I'm right there hearing the emotions, feeling the emotions of this. And uh, trying not to be seen up there so that it would just make the situation even more awkward. It was amazing to be able to hear that. I'd always been on the guy's side of that. 
uh, and hearing that, but to hear somebody else going through this. Well, the story actually ends up in good news. In one month, they're actually getting married. So you guys out there, don't give up, all right? Uh, don't stalk, but don't give up, all right? Uh, but it was great to be a fly on the wall, and it's, it's really neat because I get to be a part of their wedding uh, in a month, and I get to share that story with them, and it's, it's provided lots of great laughs for them. Uh, she was at a different place, and, and he was kind of bummed out by that situation, but he, he hung in there. Have you ever overheard a conversation about yourself among two other people? Maybe you've caught your parents back when you were younger talking about you. Maybe you've walked in on a conversation at the office place or some other place where you happen to be the subject of the conversation. How has that made you feel? How about this? How about listening into a conversation between the Son of God and God the Father? Well, that's exactly what's taking place here in John chapter 17. Getting to overhear a conversation between God the Son with God the Father. And what's amazing is we are a part of that conversation. We get to listen in. We're actually not eavesdropping and nor are we a fly on the wall, but Christ has invited us in to this conversation and to hear this conversation. And out of this conversation, especially the verses that Dave has given me uh, to speak to you today, verses 6 through verse 19, we see two relationships being talked about. Two very key relationships. One is the intimate relationship that we have with God. And out of that comes the second relationship, and that's our relationship to the world. And we're going to get some very huge implications out of this conversation that Jesus has with God the Father. I want to look into that. What a rich passage this is. Verses 6 through 19, this whole chapter, Jesus' high priestly prayer. What we gain from this. If I had two hours to preach, which I don't, don't get nervous, um, If I had two hours, it would not be enough time to mine all that is here. So I'm just going to give somewhat of a survey, and I hope out of that it whets your appetite to go back to this and dig more into it. There's great resources on the Internet, just great time to take in your own quiet time to, to go over each verse meticulously as you see what what God has for us in these verses. Starting in verse 6, there's an important transition that takes place. Jesus goes from those first few verses to praying for his own glory, to praying for his disciples, specifically the eleven. Judas has already exited to go do what he needed to do uh, as far as rallying the bad guys to come and take Jesus away. So he has his eleven, his eleven faithful that are with him. And out of this, we see these two key relationships for Christ's disciples. And that first aspect of those that relationship is a, very much a theological aspect. And then out of that, in that second relationship, there are some practical implications that come from the theology. They're always married together in Scripture. One relationship is marked by intimacy, and the second one is marked by hostility. Let me read to you the first part of those, verses 6 through 13. I'm reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. Please follow along with me starting in verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And, And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. 
For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. What an amazing set of verses that were given there. Christ's prayer reveals a disciple's intimacy with God. Out of that, as Christ has invited us into this conversation with God, there are three key elements revealed concerning a disciple's relationship with God. Number one, a disciple's intimacy with God is centered on God's name. Notice what Jesus says there. He says, I have manifested your name to the people you had gave me out of the world. Now, to know someone's name does not mean we have an intimate relationship with them. I had the privilege several years ago to meet Chuck Norris. I knew his name before then. I met him. He introduced himself to me. I introduced myself to him. Uh, I don't know a lot about him uh, other than what's been in his movies or his TV show or some little biographical sketches here or there. I know that he comes up to about my nose, believe it or not. He's not a very tall man. But on the big screen, he looks a lot bigger and he surrounds himself with actors and actresses that are shorter than him so that he looks bigger. Uh, and so that's about it. I know that he was very nice and very cordial, very approachable. Um, I'm pretty sure that he could take me uh, in any type of hand-to-hand combat. I'm pretty confident about that, uh, though he is a little bit shorter than me. But that's about it. Do I know Chuck Norris? I don't. I know who he is. I know his name. Jesus' audience here knew God's name. In fact, if they had been Jews, which many of them were, they knew all kinds of names about God. Names that you find in the Old Testament, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah Nissi, Adonai, El Shaddai. The list goes on, and each one of those names display a characteristic of God. In fact, that's the truth of understanding God's name is not just the word that represents his name but rather his character, his nature, and his attributes. But what Jesus said here is, I have manifested God's name to those who are yours. Manifested, that word there means to make actual, visible, plainly reconciled, uh, recognized, revealed. Meaning, Jesus pulled the lid off, brought the, the veil off, drew the curtain to who God really, truly was so that they might know him. That's the implication here. Jesus didn't merely describe God, give a verbal portrait, but this is the heart of what decent exposure is. He exposed them personally to the God of the universe. Some verses just even from the Gospel of John that you are no doubt familiar with through your study of this. 
No one has seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. God the Son came down 2,000 years ago to make God known, personable, connected. Other verses we know from John, John 14, 7. Jesus talking to his disciples just a few chapters before this. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now, Jesus is God's son. He is not God the father, but they are God. This is that mysterious Trinity relationship. God the son, God the father, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus was pulling that veil back for his disciples. In fact, he says in John chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. We are God. We are this God that you have been worshiping as the people of Israel. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. Very much what this song that we just sung, the center. Now, who does Jesus make God's name manifest to? It says, to the people whom you gave me out of the world. This is something very special. And it's connected to those earlier verses, verses 2 and 3. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God. And this is how. Through God's power to manifest himself to his people. To display himself to his people. That's how we know God. We didn't dream him up. We weren't smart enough to do that. Now, there's some implications, too, as to how important knowing God's name and all that his character and name represents. There's a couple other aspects you see here. You see God's name mentioned several times uh, and that idea of his name being mentioned here in these verses. Verse 11 Jesus says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Why? Which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. As true believers in Christ, as true believers in God, we know God personally. And because of that, there is an amazing unity. It's an invisible unity that we can't necessarily see with our eyes. But nonetheless, we are connected because of that. We are unified around our belief and who God is as it is revealed in Scripture. And out of that comes a visible unity. A lot of times we see, even in Christian circles, those who wear the name Christian will just kind of throw their lasso out and construct a unity that God had never intended. To be unified for the sake of unity is not why we're called to unity in the scriptures. We're unified by the transforming power of God and knowing him personally. And out of that comes the unity that we have with fellow believers. We are connected to his people. There's a beautiful aspect of of this too in verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. This relationship this personal relationship that we have, there is a connection and a keeping. The true disciple is forever connected to all that God is for us. And this is not a name that we lose. This is a permanent name. 
throughout Scripture, we see that name association with those who are His. In fact, what Jesus does, He uses a name for God right here. This is the only place that this name is used. Holy Father. Holy Father. Very important concept, what Jesus does here. He combines two major thoughts about who God the Father is. Holy. This is definitely a connection to the Old Testament. If you read Genesis to Malachi in the Old Testament, if there's one impression that you get about God is this. He is holy. He does not tolerate sin. He did not tolerate sin in His people Israel. They continue to go to idols time and time and time again. He would rebuke them. He would pour out His wrath. He would put them in captivity to get their attention. took hundreds of years. By the time the New Testament rolls around in the first century A.D., they were connected to that. The Jewish people had a reverence to the holiness of God. But unfortunately, what came out of that, and David mentioned this even as he prayed, a distance resulted, a distance that was never intended to where God was high and holy, but there was almost an unhealthy fear that went along with that. Jesus bridges that gap and says, Father, Holy Father. Very much a New Testament connection of who God is. Sometimes you maybe have even heard, I don't like the God of the Old Testament. He's a God of anger and wrath and of holiness. I like the God of the New Testament. He's a God of love. Folks, what Jesus is saying here, it's the same God. It's not two separate gods. It's God as He has revealed Himself over time through the canon of Scripture, the 66 books. And we get an amazing portrait of God. Holy. He's a God of of wrath. He does not tolerate sin. And yet, He's a God of mercy. He's a God of justice. He's a God of grace. That reveals to us just how amazing it is that we can have a personal relationship. And Jesus pulls it all together in two words, one name, Holy Father. He is our Holy Father. He's our Holy Father. And we can know Him. That's an amazing aspect of having Jesus manifest the name of God. Secondly, a disciple's intimacy with God is based on God's Word. Notice the references to God's Word and its connection to the true disciple. We see various descriptions here. Verse 6, we see that yours they were and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. That's an amazing statement. Who is Jesus talking about? He's talking about the, the 11. They were a weak, faulty, very difficult bunch. And yet Jesus describes them as having kept his word. That's an amazing statement that he makes about them. They have kept his word. Now, of course, they are not saved by good works. Impossible. But a mark that their faith was real was that Jesus was able to say they have kept your word. They have kept it in obedience. There they were. John 15, 14, going back to just a couple chapters. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. These men loved Christ. They loved God. And it was evident by their connection to the word. How about this? 
they know in truth. Verses 7 and 8. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. Now I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. This is huge. You see, a lot of people know facts about God. People have even studied this book and yet they don't know the truth. Truth is transforming. And there's some key details that Jesus gives about knowing whether they fully know the truth or not. He says, everything you've given me is from you. Jesus says, I came from you. You sent me. What is key in understanding who God is as a true disciple is his origin and his mission. Those are no slight thing. In fact, that transcends the idea of a sentimental understanding of Jesus. Oh, he's a good teacher. He was a good role model. He was a prophet. He was an amazing person. Those are, in a sense, minimal compared to understanding his origin and his mission. He is God incarnate. He is on mission to save sinners. This is intrinsic to who Jesus is. In fact, to have another understanding, Dave said last week very boldly, is demonic. In fact, what it says in 1 John 2-3 through says this, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. Those are huge words. It is very important to understand the origin and mission of Jesus. God's word keeps us from wrong thinking about Jesus. Verse 8, going back to that. It says the disciple, in hearing God's word, receives it and believes it. Again, there are those who find and studied and looked at and read this book as a piece of literature. Maybe you've had to do that in school, even in secular schools. There are men who study it inside and out, and yet they are not connected to the author of this book at all. A true disciple receives it and believes it. It is more than literature. It is more than academic. It is more than a bunch of mythological stories. It is not that at all. It is the life-transforming message of the God of the universe to his people. And a true disciple receives it and believes it. So much so, listen to this in verse 13, what Jesus says. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world. that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Upon receiving and hearing God's word, it infuses joy into the heart of a true disciple. It is the hope with which we have. Just a few verses before this, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me, but through me. That's to give us joy. In verse 33 of the previous chapter. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. That is joy. 
Because just in a few hours, Christ is going to go to the cross. And it's going to turn their world upside down. And yet he says, my words will give you joy. This is huge. Because we live in a world that constantly calls into question what God has said. It happened in the garden, right? The serpent to Eve. Did God really say that? We find that in high academic circles like this Jesus seminar that's gained in popularity. God didn't really say these things. These aren't really inspired scripture. These don't have guidance to your life. They're not trustworthy. Did God really say? It's the serpent. He's just dressed up as a college professor now. How about in some of the emergent circles? Does God really say these things, these propositional truths that make demands of our life? Did God really say that? And the answer is yes. And to take that away is to rob God's people of joy. Joy in the midst of the most difficult of circumstances. Joy even in the midst of watching the one that they followed for three years get nailed on a cross and then ascend to heaven. Joy in the midst of wherever you are today, knowing the promises of God's word and the promises are eternal and that we can stake our lives on it and not just exist and survive, but live in such a way that God's joy overwhelms us and transforms our life. That's amazing. That is God given. You see, Jesus is saying these with the shadow of the cross looming large. And in just a few hours, these disciples are going to freak out at what they have seen and what are about to see. They need an anchor. And what a huge transition that takes place. As it shows that our joy is not conditioned by our circumstances, but based on God's word. You see, a true disciple obeys God's word, knows God's word in truth, receives and believes it, and is filled with joy by God's word. Thirdly, a disciple's intimacy with God is fortified by God's guardianship. God keeps us. Just how secure is this relationship that we have with our Holy Father? What a great reminder on Father's Day that we have a Holy Father and He keeps us. He guards us. Notice many times in this passage, it talks about being kept, being keeping, being guarded. This is important in light of the cross. And we see that's why they could endure the cross. And they were shaky, especially when it comes to Peter. They didn't know what hit him when Jesus was taken away and crucified. Even though Jesus had been telling them, this is what's going to happen to me. They weren't listening. But then it came together. And then you find in Acts chapter 2, a different set of guys. Just a few short days. What happened? I'll tell you what happened. The power of the cross alive in their hearts, the promises of God that transform their life. And you go Peter from Mr. Denial to preaching that sermon in Acts chapter 2 and thousands get saved. What happened? This is what happened. The keeping power of God. Let's look at the hope that we have as God, as the guardian of our faith. Our security and faith is a result of a unique relationship. Look at verse 9, a very interesting thing. Jesus says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. It's safe to say that God has a unique relationship with those that are his. Yes, Jesus loves the world. God loves the world, John 3, 16. 
Jesus is on mission to save sinners in the world. But there is a unique relationship that he has with those who are his. That's why it is demonic to create a God that is just all-encompassing. Because it puts people in a false hope that just by believing a God, any God, and that all roads lead to that God, is demonic. It is the message of the Antichrist. The truth is, the world is in rebellion to God and must cease being the world to be saved. This is how Peter made it. Peter denied Jesus three times. Jesus predicted that in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 34. He said, Peter, I'll give you the summation of that. Peter, you're going to... Satan is asked to sift you like wheat. You're going to deny me three times, but you're going to come back and you're going to be stronger than ever. And that's exactly what happened. This idea of Jesus praying for his disciples in a unique way as a precursor to the fact that when Jesus ascended, when he rose again from the dead, he ascended to heaven and is seated at the Father's right hand, interceding on our behalf to the Father. That conversation with God has not stopped. Our security relies on the keeping power of the Father and the Son. As you see this possession that takes place here, they are kept, Jesus says in verse 10, I have kept them, I have guarded them, that those are two different words there. The, the idea of keeping is a protection by means of restraint, a preserving, a watching over. Guarding is a protection from outside dangers. And what this implies on both of those is that together it gives a complete picture of the fortifying powers of God's protective hand. John 28, 10, 28, and 29. No one can snatch them out of my hand or the Father's hand. That is how strong this connection and the assurance that we have. Now, if you listen to that, that is not an excuse to be lazy or to give a license to sin. Those who are kept by God are keeping themselves to God. We keep as God keeps. There's a bit of a mystery in that. And what's amazing in this statement in verse 10 is, I have kept them, they are mine, yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Once again, these guys? Jesus is glorified in them? They're kind of a pathetic bunch. Kind of a strange bunch. But don't underestimate the power of grace and that believing being a small thing. What J.C. Ryle says, famous Anglican bishop of the late 1800s in England says this, it is evident that Jesus sees far more in his believing people than they see in themselves or than others see in them. They were weak and unstable as water, but they believed and I loved and loved their master when millions refused to own him. That's not a small thing. And as pathetic of a bunch as they are, Christ is glorified through them and the fact that they believe. See, the world's value system is quite different than God's value system. And ultimately, we see in verse 12 that our security relies on God's sovereign will. What about Judas? Jesus didn't do a very good job keeping him. Can we trust him? But Jesus pulls the veil back on that. He says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus was never caught off guard by Judas. Judas did not fall because Jesus failed to keep him. 
It was a fulfillment of God's word. In other words, take heart, you eleven. All twelve of these disciples were a part of God's sovereign plan. Yes, Judas is responsible for his actions, but even in his rebellion to God, God used it to glorify himself and to save mankind. That is relief to us as well, especially when we see those around us that used to be among us, but are no longer among us. How did that happen? 1 John 2.19 reminds us, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. It's an amazingly comforting and sobering statement that the Apostle John makes in his follow-up letters to this gospel. See, in this first half, Jesus reveals key aspects of this dynamic relationship that we have with him. And then it becomes very practical. In the last few minutes that I have, I want to go through this as quickly as I can because of time. Christ's prayer reveals a disciple's relationship to the world. And that relationship is one of hostility. Not because we are hostile to the world, but because we are Christ, the world is now hostile to us. In fact, it says in James 4, 4, you adulterous people, James rebuking the people for blending so much into the world. And he says this, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Even though we are God's possession and no longer citizens of this world, we are not removed. And that can be very difficult because the world will not accept us. It will be oftentimes hostile to us. So what do we do? There are four things based on this relationship that practically helps us in a world that is often hostile to those who are Christ. Number one, we are separate. This is part of our relationship. God's word we see in verse 14. Let me read these verses to you. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth as you sent me into the world. So I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. We are separate from the world. Christ, as it says there, just as I am different than the world, they are different than the world. And what that does is infuse us with confidence and courage that we are the kinsmen of Christ. When the world treats us with hostility, we are kinsmen with Christ. When you walk into an Italian restaurant, and those who might be Italian, they go into an Italian restaurant and there's comfort. And who's on the wall? You don't see pictures of Sean Connery or Bono or Margaret Thatcher in an Italian restaurant. Just like you would walk into a pub, you would not see pictures of Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, or Tommy Lasorda, for that matter. Because there is a sense of kinsmanship when you walk into an Italian restaurant, a pub, a Mexican restaurant, a place where you want to go and feel the familiarity of home. Christ is saying, you're not going to feel at home here, but take heart, I'm your kinsman. That is good company. That is the best company to have. What makes us separate? It's not our subculture, our music, our clothes, 
We are God's and the world system is in direct opposition and we are in its crosshairs. No, it is our relationship, this life transforming relationship that we have with him. And we are secure in this. As it says in verse 15, I I ask that you don't take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Wait a minute. You just said the world's going to be hostile to us. Are we going to be okay? And Jesus says, yep, because God the Father is on watch. He is keeping you. You are secure in him. No matter the foe, Satan will not take you down. God is on duty. Any failure on our part is when we choose not to have faith in our in our God and his promises. Peter stumbled and fell, but ultimately returned to Christ. That is great news to us. Pete, Judas, on the other hand, stumbled and fell and went out and killed himself. Shows the drastic difference between those who are God's those who are not, even in the midst of failure. And you know, our security in this is not in a past profession, but in a dynamic possession. If today your hope is the fact that at some point in your past you prayed a little prayer, or you walked forward at a crusade, or you made some sort of decision, and yet you look back on the process of your life and there is no change, That's not what scripture teaches. What scripture says is that in Christ you were born again. You are a new creation. You are alive to Christ. And because of that, there is growth. There is a process that is taking place. And that is the security that we have, that we see God at work. Yes, we're not all that we want to be in Christ. And yet there is a process. In fact, that leads to our our third point. The sanctifying process that we are in the world. We are to hold true and strong the fact that we are separate, that we are brought out. And we do this through the word of truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The sanctification process, a fancy word for becoming more and more like Christ. That's what the power of the word does in the life of the believer. To draw us out continually so that we do not become enmeshed so much with the world that we become enemies with God. We see this whole process in Romans 8. Those first few first lines are familiar to us, but we forget to keep reading. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, sanctification, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. There's a threefold aspect. We are justified at the moment of conversion. All our sins are paid for by the cross if we trust and believe in who Jesus is. Then a process begins, a lifelong process of being conformed to the image of the Son. And then at the end of that, the result is we are glorified. When we go to be with Jesus, whether he comes back for us or we die, we are glorified. We become perfect. And it all comes together for us. This is the process. We see this in verse 19. How this is secured for us is at the cross. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus secured for that. And in that, as he secures us, he sends us out. Just as the Father has sent me, so I send you with the message of reconciliation to a world that is lost. 
What's our action? Some key questions. Do you pray for your relationship with God? Is that a priority to you? We learn much about our relationship with God. Notice how Jesus doesn't pray for an easy road here, but he prays for his intimacy and his personal impact to transform them. Are you fostering your intimacy with God? Do you know all that his name entails? Are you in his word to find out what that means? Do you understand the security to mean that you can do whatever you want to go to heaven? Or do you find that a security to keep you from the evil one? Do you pray for your relationship with the world? Are you in the daily fight to stay separate, to be sanctified? Or do you blend in so much so that no one can tell the difference between you and those who are of the world? Are you ready to act on your prayers? Notice how Jesus says that in verse 19. And for their sake I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in the truth. Then a few hours later Jesus went to the cross. He acted on his prayer. Maybe as you read this, you think, well, this is great because this is for the 11. But what about me? Not to get too far ahead, but verse 20 says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word. That's us. Those who believe in Christ, that is us. How will Christ's prayer affect your life and your relationship with him and your relationship with the world? I hope your appetite today has been whetted that you might go back to these verses and dive deep into them to see all that's implied here for us as believers. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace that we can call you Heavenly Father. Lord, I pray today as we're mindful of Father's Day that we would be mindful of you in all that we do. Lord, I pray that we would be impacted by our relationship with you and that personal aspect. And Lord, I pray that because of that, it would impact us as we impact the world around us because you have sent us out to be your light bearers to this world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.